So Ephesians chapter 6, we're back in our study of the armor of God. Um, and this is an important message, guys. It's a really important message for me. Uh, all the things that I've been studying have just resonated with me. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for this message. Uh, even though it fell on a weekend where a lot of people are traveling and out of town and on vacation, so it's a little bit thin. Um, and also the rain and the weather, I've prayed that uh, many people would be able to download this message and just encounter and discover, maybe rediscover for themselves the truths that we're going to talk about uh, in Ephesians 6. Because all the different pieces of armor we've looked at, this is one of the most important. This is the only offensive weapon that's actually mentioned in the entire armor that the Apostle Paul mentions under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the sword of the Spirit, and he gives us no question as to what he means, what the metaphor, what the illustration points to. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit. It's a spiritual weapon. And then he says, which is the Word of God. So we're talking about Scripture. We're talking about truth. We're talking about the Bible. And uh, I'll just pull up the outline for you today so you can follow along. These are the things that I'm planning to... Uh, to talk about in this passage, we're going to look at four. These are going to be brief points, okay? Number one, Christianity is a spiritual fight. It's a spiritual fight. Number two, doctrine is important. And we'll, I'll give you the reasons why. Number three, the Bible is not a book to throw at the enemy, but it's a word to speak to yourself. And number four, get into the word and master it. Know it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Be familiar with it. Know how to wield this weapon. So that's our outline today. Point number one is Christianity is a spiritual fight. We are in an invisible battle. It's the title of our series for a reason. And backing up a little bit in this passage, Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. I know so often Christians forget that. I forget that. We think this is a war between maybe if you're a real conservative, maybe it's the left versus the right, uh, or it's this group versus this group and we always put a crosshair on people and we forget that no listen people are not the enemy sometimes people are enslaved by the enemy they're imprisoned by his lies they need to be rescued but they're not the enemy the enemy is actually invisible we see his corruption we see satan's influence we see his effects in our society and the family and the church and truth what's going on there but listen people are not the enemy the, the people are the mission field they need to be rescued we're not fighting a flesh and blood battle. We are fighting, the Bible says, fallen angels, the devil, Satan, principalities, powers, cosmic forces of darkness. That sounds like some kind of an epic, you know, thriller movie, but this is actually the Word of God tells us this. And to be honest, we wouldn't even have to have the Bible tell us that there's a war going on around us. We know that. Some of the evil that we see, some of the temptations we face, I don't even think we can explain them just by the depravity of our own heart. Have you ever did something, said something, thought something, and you explain it to yourself later that that just that didn't feel like me? I know I have the depravity. I know I have the, uh, the ability to think such things because the Bible says my heart is dark. It's sick. You know, it's desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, I can't even know it, but that just didn't seem like me. Or that came out of thin air. Where did that come from? The Bible says, yes, yes, it recognizes there is an enemy who opposes us. The word against in Greek is used six times in this passage. Satan opposes us. He hinders us. He tempts us. He fires fiery darts, missiles, arrows at us. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He wants to corrupt and to disarm God's people. So this is a spiritual battle. And so people are not the enemy. Satan is. 
And we were fighting before we were a Christian, before God delivered us from the darkness and opened our eyes to see our sin, to see the power and the beauty and the glory of Christ and come to Him and repent and believe. We were fighting a battle, but it was a different battle. Before, the Bible says, uh, we were at enmity with God. We were fighting God. And Matt, wrap your mind around that. <laughs> How blinded we were before we came to Christ. What a desperate situation we were in. We were fighting against our Creator. What hope would there be for us to win? Uh, but now, praise God, we've been delivered from that, and we're fighting a different battle. There's different opponents. There's a different foe. We're not fighting God anymore. Romans says, Romans 5 in the Bible, says we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God. He's not our enemy anymore. Praise God. He's, he's with us. He's for us. He's within us, fighting with us and for us. But now our enemy is Satan. So we have a different enemy, but listen, we have been guaranteed victory. We had the promises in the Bible that say we are the victors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we also have different resources to fight this battle successfully. We have divine resources that are powerful. They're not puny. They're not weak. They're not even limited. They're unlimited. Hallelujah. That's a good point. We're fighting a spiritual battle. We've been guaranteed victory. And we have the resources we need to succeed and to be successful. So... I think we understand when we look around, if you look on TV and you see uh, maybe a riot building up, what do you see? You see policemen that are pretty equipped to the hilt, right? They have like these plastic shields, they have helmets, they have weapons, they have mace spray, uh, they're, they're, they have black, you know, they're suited up, they got bulletproof vest on, they have everything they need because they sense there's danger. And we look at them and we say, that's right, man, they're ready for the battle, but I think so often as Christians, if we would reflect on our mindset of living the Christian life, we don't sense the danger that we're in. We don't. We don't sense that. We forget it. We forget that there's a battle going on. There's an enemy that opposes us and he hates us. And so often we don't have our armor on. This passage, everything Paul's taught us, we have not taken this armor up. And, and therefore, I will be totally honest with you as your pastor. I believe, I see so many professing Christians and they're in the spiritual ER all the time. All the time. It's like one, not crisis, because just to face a crisis is not to be defeated. It's how you handle it. Uh, and I've said before, the church is not like a museum for eminent saints that come in here and they have halos and we have it all together. It's more like a hospital for sinners who are recovering, right? But listen, remember, the object of a hospital is not for you to stay there for five years, right? <laughs> You don't want to eat the food there for that long, right? No, the, the object of a hospital is for you to get better and get well and get sent on your way and be strong and healthy and recover and then go help other people. But so often I think we look around the Christian landscape and we see Christians, they're always in the ER. They seem to be defeated and weak and exhausted and at their wits end all the time. And I believe it's, it's for this reason. I do not believe they understand, one, the battle they are in, and two, the armor that they have failed to take up and put on. They're trusting in some other armor. Maybe their own wisdom, their own ingenuity. Maybe the armor they're looking for is, is at Barnes & Noble or Dr. Phil or on Facebook. Or I don't know what it is, but it's not the armor that I see Paul telling us to pick up and put on. And I think specifically the piece of armor we're looking at today, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, so many people fail, brothers and sisters, at that point because they don't know the Word of God. They haven't taken God's call to know it and to wield it and to own it and to master it serious. And listen, that's hard work. And I know people in the culture we live in, they don't want to hear that. 
What, you mean there's work to be done? Yeah, if you want to be a valiant soldier, if you want to fight the good fight and you don't want to spend the rest of your Christian life in the spiritual ER, yeah, there's work to be done. There's a weapon to know, to familiarize yourself with. And so many people, I think, drop the ball at that point and that's why they leave. They lead defeated lives. It's just one thing after another and they're falling, they're failing. Satan is just pushing them back. They're not doing what God tells them to do and therefore they're not withstanding. The evil day is just pounding them into the ground over and over. They're on the ropes. They got two black eyes and it's, you know, the round's not even halfway over yet. I hope that makes sense. All these analogies I'm using. So let me ask you a question. There's this fierce opponent that we face. He's cunning. He's powerful. He's wily. He's deceptive. I mean, angels are powerful. And the Bible says that Satan, his name was Lucifer, the shining one, before he fell from heaven, he was one of the most powerful angels. And now he has fallen and he's our enemy. And, you know, I, I'm not going to do a lesson on angelology here, but, but angels are powerful beings. They're so radiant when they do appear that people fell down and worshiped them. And Satan is a powerful, he's a powerful enemy, so powerful that when you read the other angels, the mighty angels like Michael the archangel, they wouldn't even engage in, uh, Satan in combat. They just said simply, the Lord rebuke you, right? That's all that needed to be said from their perspective. So what if I ask you this question? What do you think makes Satan tremble? What makes him afraid? If you're facing him on the battlefield, what is it that would so paralyze Satan with fear that he would turn around and flee the battle? If I ask you that question, what would your answer be? Because that's it. Yeah, I kind of gave it away with the title, right? You, you guys already stole my thunder. But do you, I want to ask you another question. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Satan trembles when he faces a Christian who knows this weapon and who has it and is skilled at using it? You better believe he is. I mean, don't take my word for it. Check this out. James chapter 5. This is in the Bible, guys. This is in the Bible. James chapter 4, rather, verse 7 says this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's pretty amazing that that is right there in Scripture. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan will run away from you when you resist him. Well, then the next question is this, how do I resist him? <laughs> I mean, we could talk about submitting to God, all that that entails. I think one of the ways we submit to God is we believe what he says about his word. That we want to take it in our heart, hide it in our heart, so that we won't sin against God, so that we'll have weaponry against the, against the enemy. So, to frighten an enemy, it's going to take more than defensive armor. Have you ever, can you imagine a battle that you show up and you just see the person's armor and you go, ah, and run away? <laughs> no, no. Defensive armor is not that intimidating, right? It's not that menacing. But if you show up and you see this guy wearing armor, and he says, greetings, my foe. And he pulls out a sword and like nunchuck. You remember back in the day, I used to watch karate movies. And, you know, this person would show up and he would have nunchucks and he would do a little demo. And the opponent would be like, dang, I'm out of here, right? It's kind of like, what makes Satan flee from you? He knows you have this word. You've hidden it in your heart. And you are able to wield it effectively and skillfully against him. He can't handle that. He will flee. He will flee. We see that in the Bible. And we've probably seen it in our own lives. So this is how we stand and not fall. Um, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book um, on spiritual warfare, and he believes that every piece of armor is suited in, in a really specific way to combat, to combat Satan's strategic attacks. He believes 
The breastplate of righteousness arms us against Satan as an accuser, right? He's the accuser of the brethren. The sandals protect us against Satan as a serpent. You know, if you, if you live in Florida and you see snakes and you're petrified of them like my wife, you need, you need the right kind of shoes on, right? So that you can stomp on them. Or maybe not. Maybe so you can run away. I don't know. At any rate, it protects you. The, the, the shoes of the gospel of peace protect you from Satan as a serpent. The shield of faith arms us against Satan as a tempter. The helmet of salvation protects you from Satan as a deceiver. But the sword is our means of resisting Satan as a liar. Because he is a liar, he is the father of lies, and there is no truth in him, Jesus says in John 8. There's no truth in him. He is a skilled liar. And that's why we need the Word of God. Wendy Alsup says this. Can you guys see that? She says, we have these garments because God has purchased them for us. She's talking about the armor of God. And we need to put them on in the face of Satan's ever-present schemes and accusations against us. This means remembering the gospel or wearing the gospel, if you will. We've talked about this. All of this armor has been purchased for us by Jesus. All these different pieces of armor represent benefits, freedoms, and privileges that, that we have because of the sacrifice, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why when we put on this armor, we are really wearing all the things that God did for us. And look, this is what that means. If you're not reading the Word, if you're not familiarizing yourself with who God is, who Christ is, what He accomplished on your behalf, and how you receive it, you're not going to be wearing the gospel. You're not going to be wearing this armor at all, and you're going to live a weak and really defeated Christian life. So this is a spiritual fight. That's the first point. It's a spiritual fight. What does that mean? Well, this particular piece of, of armor is called the sword of the what? The Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. What does that mean exactly? Well, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit authored the Scriptures, right? He is the one who moved men. You know, men of God were moved along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote Scripture infallibly. We don't even know uh, exactly how that process works, but we know this. You have the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's his experience. It's his vocabulary. It's his writing, but yet the Holy Spirit moved him to include what he included and to exclude what he excluded. So this weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it belongs to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants you to have it in your possession. He is the one that authored and inspired it. He is the one, listen, who interprets it. The Bible says you cannot understand the Word of God unless the Holy Spirit illuminates your eyes, opens your eyes, helps you understand what it means. There's lots of different passages that talk about this. Check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says this. Now we have received, he's talking about the Bible. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely giving us, given to us by God. In other words, if, the Holy, if we're not relying on the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Bible, we're not going to understand it fully. We're not going to be using it the right way. We need the Spirit's guidance. We need His direction. We need His help. And you know what? We have the Spirit of God. Jesus promised to send Him. You know, the gospel is the reminder that we had the Holy Spirit. He's an advocate. He's called the helper that Jesus would send to us to remind us everything that Jesus taught us. All the scriptures that we read, the Holy Spirit empowers them, makes them come alive, helps us understand them, and helps us to wield them against the enemy. That's why this is not the only place in the Bible where we're told we need the Spirit's help. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 talks about slaying your sin. 
putting to death your sin. Christianity is all about this gruesome fight, isn't it? Romans 8, 13 says this, if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, see, you have to have the Holy Spirit's help to do anything in the Christian life. And even putting to death the deeds of the body, you need the Word of God. And if you don't have the Spirit... See, so many people try to separate the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. But they're, you can't separate that. You know, they're not like oil and water. They're not mutually exclusive realities. The Holy Spirit uses the truth to sanctify us, to, to build us up, to empower us. Jesus prayed... In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them. That means make them holy, build them up, mature them, grow them, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the Bible is how we grow. It's how we thrive. It's how we flourish. It's how we defend ourselves, and it's how we resist the devil. And we need the Spirit's help in order to be able to do that. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, it is the Holy Spirit alone who enables us to use this word properly. The relationship between the Spirit and the Word is an important one. Failure to realize this has accounted for many troubles in the history of the Christian church. People always tend to put the emphasis exclusively on one side or the other, either the Bible or the Spirit. And Lloyd-Jones says, the moment you separate the Spirit and the Word, you are in trouble. I agree, and you see that throughout the long history of the church. People that have fallen into error thinking that those two things need to remain separate. No, they're friends. They want to be together, right? And it's okay when you're reading the Word of God to pray to the Holy Spirit and talk to the Holy Spirit. He's God too, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And He's the one who activates this Word in your heart. Ask Him to help. I pray when I preach, Holy Spirit, help me. If, if I am up here in my, on my own trying to make this book come alive, I'm hopeless. I might, we might as well just all go home, get out of the rain, and drink cookies and milk and binge on Netflix, right? Because it's a hopeless task. We need the Spirit to be here with us to open our eyes. And when we're reading the Word by ourselves, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to discern it, to understand it, and to apply it in the right places in our Christian life where we're, where we're facing the most intense heat of the battle. So I hope that makes sense. This is a terrible illustration to use because so many Christians already think of the Holy Spirit as a force instead of a person. But uh, that aside, if you want to think of uh, the Holy Spirit as electricity, okay, and you want to think of uh, if we're the light, if we're the light, the bulb, and the Holy Spirit's the electricity, the Bible's the cord, the metal. He's the conduit. If you don't have truth for the Holy Spirit to use to empower you, you're not going to get empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me just say it that way, right? Think the Holy Spirit is just going to zap you and enliven you and empower you and open your eyes. He's not going to do that without truth. The Holy Spirit wants you to use truth. That's inviting the Holy Spirit into your life. If you see somebody, all they ever talk about is the Holy Spirit, but there's no devotion to, to truth. There's no commitment to Scripture. There's no familiarity with the Bible. Something's wrong there. You know, we all fall off. And then there's some people that talk about the Bible, and they never talk about the Holy Spirit. It's like Matt Chandler says. They think that the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Uh, but it's God the Holy Spirit who uses the Bible. Does that make sense? So let's not separate those two entities and realities. Let's keep, them, let's keep them together. So, okay, point number two, doctrine is preeminent. Oh, I don't have a slide for that. This sounds like a boring point, doesn't it? Seriously, it does. Doctrine is preeminent. They're like, oh, you're going to talk about doctrine. Well, listen, I just want to tell you this. And I don't think anybody in here would even question this, but let's just imagine for a moment that sometimes we question, is doctrine really that important? 
You know, we get all bent out of shape. We get in these arguments, whole, whole different divisions and churches and denominations and sects. Uh, they split off and argue and wrangle over doctrine. Why is it such a big deal? And then there's the people even outside the church that say, you know, you Christians, you're so belligerent. You're so uh, condescending and dogmatic. It's always doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. I, I just want to make a point here and then we'll move on. You cannot escape doctrine. You can't. I don't care whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever. You can't escape doctrine. Do you know, if you look up doctrine on the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, you know what it says? A set of beliefs or values that individuals and groups hold. Right? Doctrine is just truth. That's all it is. And everybody has a truth. Even the person who says, uh, there's no such thing as doctrine. Doctrine is terrible. You're like, so that's your doctrine then, right? You get it? That's their doctrine. They got a doctrine too. We all do. It's inescapable. The only question is, what's the source of your doctrine? And is it good, bad? Is it right, wrong? Is it healthy or unhealthy? Because the Bible talks about healthy, biblical doctrine. But listen, the reality of doctrine is inescapable. All of us adhere to some kind of doctrine. And I think it's really interesting when you look at this armor and you look at the way that Paul laid it out, the very first piece of armor was what? You guys remember? It's been seven weeks. Belt of truth, right? And one of the very last pieces of armor is the sword of the spirit. So truth and truth. And the whole thing is sandwiched and bookmarked by the truths that are represented in the Bible. And you say, why? Is Paul just repetitious here? Is he redundant? Is he losing it? Is he old? What's going on here? No, listen. This is so important. All, all of these pieces of armor hang or fall on the biblical truth that they're connected to. Let me say it like this. The belt of truth, remember that's your, <laughs> that's your underwear, so to speak. That's your foundation. This belt of truth, a, a soldier would put a belt on, okay? It would be like a girdle in a way, like a male, fem, uh, masculine, okay, moving right along. This would hold everything up. This would hold, if you put all your armor on and you don't have on a belt, your armor is going to fall off in battle. I'll, I'll say it this way. I grew up in the South. I grew up on a farm. We had 13 registered quarter horses, and every day of my life, it seemed like, until I was 13, I was saddling horses for myself, for other people. We would go to horse shows every Saturday and church on Sunday, but check this out. How many of you have ridden horses and kind of know what you're doing? All right, good. This is going to resonate. Uh, horses are smart creatures. God made them that way. They're not stupid. When you saddle a horse, they don't like it. They don't, I'm sorry, I don't know what movies you've watched or books you've read. Horses don't like a tight object being strapped to their, to their body. And a human being, especially if you're heavy, getting on top of it. Most of them don't, okay? So here's what our horses would do. Check this out. When you're saddling a horse, I don't care how beautiful or ornate or expensive or how leather the saddle is. When you are putting, you pull the girth, it's called the girth strap. There's two straps. The important one is the girth strap. And you're pulling that thing and you're cinching it up. Horses are smart. And they don't want that thing very tight because it, it makes it hard for them to breathe. You know what horses do? Isn't this amazing how God makes creatures? Horses bloat themselves. They're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that for the video. But, you know, you know they, they stick their bellies out. My dad taught me this when I was four years old and I didn't believe him. And he said, all right, go ahead, son. Saddle that horse up and just barely get it tight and watch it. And I did it. And I watched that horse. And it was almost like he looked to the left and to the right, and then he went, <sighs> when I was finished, and, the, and the, the girth was loose on it. Now, do you know what would happen if you saddle a horse, and you don't know what you're doing, and maybe you're heavy, and you get on that horse, and you start galloping? Guess what? That's right. That's right. The belt is very, very important. So what you do when you're strapping a saddle on, you would take your knee. You know, you're not cruel to the animal, 
but you kind of, you, you bump them, and they're like, and then you, you cinch that thing up, because they're bloating themselves. They're filling their stomach full of air. And listen, all that to say this, the belt holds the saddle on, you know, and especially if you were cavalry, if you're riding the horse, you want to be on the horse when you're in the, in the midst of battle. And if you're a soldier, you want your armor to stay on you. It's not any good if it falls off. And you say, well, what's Paul saying? He's saying this, this belt of truth is foundational. From the very beginning, you don't have this belt of truth on. You don't have this commitment to Scripture. Your life is not governed by God's divine truth. You're not saturating your mind and heart with it, being dominated by it. Then you don't have your belt on. Your armor is not going to stay on, dude. It's going to fall off. And you're going to be in the spiritual ER again. Again, right? So he's bookmarked this whole panoply of armor with truth. And the very last thing is the sword of the Spirit, right? And, the, and they represent different parts of the Bible, I believe, uh, because, make sure I get this right, because check this out. This is point three. This is point three. Uh, and I put on here, I think, use the word spoken, not just the Bible. See, the, the Bible is, it's not just a book that you take and throw at the enemy, you know, you could think of it as forest versus trees. This specific word that's used here for the word of God, it means specificity. It means uh, details of the Bible. It means specific truths. Paul could have used a word like logos. Logos is a Greek word that means word. It means complete, comprehensive, finished. It means uh, generic. But he didn't use that word here for word of God. He used the word rhema. And that means actually an utterance. It means a very specific word that's spoken. Check this out. Isn't the Bible amazing? All the different words Paul could have used in Greek. And the Bible, it says every word is inspired. Every word was selected intentionally, deliberately, strategically. So this is a different part. The belt of truth is, is comprehensive, complete commitment to the Bible. The sword of the Spirit, when you're fighting Satan, it's not that you're throwing the whole Bible at him. Listen. It's, there's a very specific part of the Bible that you're going to have to know and use, know what it means, know how it applies in order to be successful in combating him. Does that make sense? It's not logos, it's rhema. It's a specific truth. And let me give you an example here. Um, one of my favorite books, my wife and I got married. And a week after we were married, we said, we're going to read a book out loud together every night when we get in bed. Because we were going to be amazing Christians, Right. So the first book we picked was John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And we read that. That was the first fight we ever got in because I, I couldn't stand the way my wife read, read out loud. She was, sorry, babe. <laughs> she was reading like I was a kindergartner. I'm like, stop, you're killing me. Just read it, just read it. So anyway, we read this book to each other out loud. And I can remember this specific part because, you know, he wrote this in the 1500s, 1600s. Um, when he was in prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel, Bunyan did. That's when he finished it. And he wrote a section in this book about when Pilgrim, he names him Christian, he meets this foe named Apollyon. And the, that word in Greek means destroyer, Satan. So here's this Christian Pilgrim. He's on his way to Zion. He's left the city of destruction. This whole book is an allegory of the Christian life. And he meets Satan. And it's really interesting to, to me the way Bunyan, in his day and age, the way he would understand spiritual warfare taking place. Because I think he was dead accurate with the way he described this. Check this out. I'll read it. I'm going to have to read it up here. Can you see that picture? It was really cool, the artwork that went along with this book. Now, Christian had not gone far before he was severely tested. For he noticed a very foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name was Apollyon. 
At this, Christian became afraid and immediately pondered whether he ought to retreat or stand his ground. But on further consideration, he realized that he had no armor on his back, and therefore to expose himself there and fleeing would probably give this foe the advantage with his use of piercing darts. So he determined to risk confrontation with this enemy. And then, man, it's on. This battle is on. And what's so interesting to me is Bunyan, in only a way that he could do, he's trying to allegorize the Christian life in a memorable way in book form. So he has this dialogue between Christian and between Satan. And it starts out, Satan is saying, where, who are you and where are you from? And he says, oh, I'm pilgrim and I'm leaving the city of destruction and I'm going to Zion. And Satan, the, the first tactic that he uses is, is accusation. And he says, well, wait a minute. City of destruction, that's my city. You belong to me. You don't have any business being over here. You need to go back immediately. I mean, just the, it, it's interesting the way that Bunyan would wrap his mind around how does Satan attack us? Well, first he accused him, and then he tries to guilt him. He's saying, look, uh, I know you've enlisted into this new king, this new prince of Zion, but he's not going to accept you. You're not serving him. You're not faithful. It's really interesting. If you read that book, it's a really helpful book. That's why it was one of the best sellers outside of the Bible for hundreds of years. But that's the, that's the tactic that Satan used. He, would try to, he tried to seduce Pilgrim by saying, look, I'm a much better prince uh, than this king you're talking about. And if you come back to the city of destruction, I'll make sure that you have a smooth ride. Uh, but the way that Christian combats Satan in this scenario that Bunyan plays out is he's quoting scripture. He quotes scripture over and over. And you know, John Bunyan, his whole mind and heart was filled with scripture. Charles Spurgeon said that if you were to, to cut John Bunyan, he would bleed Bible. <laughs> you know, the Bible would flow out of him instead of blood. And so Bunyan is just chalking this whole encounter full of scripture. Every attack that Apollyon has, Christian, the pilgrim Christian encounters it and combats it with, with specific truth. And at the very end, when Satan couldn't get anywhere with him, uh, then he said, well, I'm going to destroy you right here in the middle of the road. And he you know, throws his fiery darts, and then Christian takes up his sword. And when he's fighting against Satan, he loses his sword, and he prays for the Holy Spirit to help him, and he rows over, grabs it, and he says, we are more than conquerors. And he you know, del delivers a, like a, not a fatal blow to Apollyon, but he flees. He resists the devil, and the devil flees from him. And I love that. If you have time, this is free. You can get it in free modern English, I would recommend, modern, because it's filled with these and thous and whithersoevers. Uh, you can read about this, and you can see this is normally how the Christian life plays out. It's that there's a, there's a rhema, there's a specific word you have to use. What is it that Satan is coming at you with? Because he's very subtle, he's very clever. What is it? I, I can give you some examples both from the Bible and from my own life. Okay, So check this out. Um, when I was growing up, became a Christian, was 22 years old. One year later, I moved here to Florida. And I was lonely. I wanted to be married. I, I knew God was calling me to be a pastor. Um, I wanted to be married. Uh, but I also saw that, you know, that I had ro this romanticized idea of serving as a single missionary the rest of my life in, in South Africa. I'd been there twice, and I loved it. So I, I didn't know. I didn't know what God was doing in my life. And I remember I felt tempted. I felt uh, there would be times I would feel like God was forsaking me. There was times I would think of my future. I would be anxious. And I remember a scripture from Psalm 84. Verses 10 and 11, it says this. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He will give grace and he will give glory. And then this. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
Man, that's a great passage. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your status is relationally. That is a great passage to put in your scabbard and to just keep there because I guarantee you, you'll use that. Because here's what I was thinking. God's holding out on me. Whether it was, what if I get married? And 1 Corinthians 7 says the man that's married is, is uh, in a sense, he forfeits some freedoms. And I'm not going to be able to be an effective pastor if I'm married. And on the other token, I said, I don't want to be lonely. Uh, you know, I want, I, want, I want to have a helpmate. I want to have a partner in ministry. So I'm like, Lord, I, I don't know what's good. You say he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And it's also good if you remain single, Paul says. So help me, Lord. I feel tempted here. And the, and the Bible says no good thing will he, will he withhold. If it's better for me to be married, if it's better for me to be, be a part of God's kingdom building enterprise, to be single, God's going to bring that good thing into my life, celibacy. And he'll give me a, a love in it and a contentment with it. Uh, and if it's better for me to be married, God and his timing will bring a wife into my life. And then I was also reading Psalm 119 verse 71 and it says this, it is good that I've been afflicted that I might learn your word. Oh, I didn't like that at first. But you know what? That's another good that God told me about, right? No good thing will he withhold from you. <laughs> Whether it's singleness, whether it's marriage, whether it's affliction, whether it's cancer, you know, listen guys, that's a good truth to have in your scabbard. I'm telling you right now, because I had pulled that verse out and used it so many times when Satan has came at me and I said, look, I know that God will give grace. He will give glory. He's the son who provides. He's the shield who protects and no good thing will he withhold from me. No, I don't walk uprightly perfectly, but I'm seeking and striving to in his power. Um, so that's just one for my personal life. Let me give you one from the Bible now. You're going to like this. Acts chapter 23. The Apostle Paul is on trial with the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And they're hurling all kinds of accusations at him. And listen, Paul, he's fed up. He's sick of it. He's the, he's the Apostle to the Gentiles, but he's also a human being. And he's fed up, and he's at his wit's end. He's had enough. And do you remember what happens? The high priest, Paul says something about, I've lived in good conscience up until this day. And the high priest ordered those standing beside Paul to slap him on the face. You remember this? I mean, man, the Bible's interesting. I don't get it, the people that are bored with the Bible. So there, there's a high priest, and, and he orders somebody to slap Paul in the mouth. Now, Paul's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been maligned, misunderstood, accused. The guy's had a rough week, okay? He wasn't ready to be slapped in the mouth by a hypocritical high priest. So do you remember what he said after this? Check this out. I love this. I love this because Paul's a human being and it's okay to be a human being. Check this out. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul, <laughs> Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Woo, I love it. Don't you? Come on, guys. Amen. Don't you love that? Paul's like, God's going to strike you in the mouth, you hypocrite. That's what it means. You're a hypocrite. You're whitewashed on the outside, and you're hypocritical and dead on the inside. And then check this out. Check this out. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? They called Paul out on the carpet. They're like, Paul, what are you doing? This is a high priest, bro. God ordained this position and sovereignly placed this man, and you just, you just reviled him. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that Satan was in on this little meeting here? What do you guys think? The apostle to the Gentiles. What a great opportunity to discredit him, destroy his gospel witness, push him back. 
So what's Paul, what does Paul do? Does he just get it together? He goes, oh, forget, oh, I, didn't, I didn't know. I'm sorry, I had no idea who that was. Well, he says something like that, but check out what did it for Paul. Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written. Bam, there it is. There's the sword of the Spirit. Satan's attacking him. What does Paul do? He pulls out the word. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28, and it says, you don't revile a spiritual man in a high... And I'm not, this is not self-serving, I promise. I'm not saying, you better watch it. I'm your, I'm your pastor up here. I'm not saying that. I'm saying... The point is, I mean, I couldn't say that. <laughs> the point is that the Apostle Paul knew the word. And he pulled out the word, the rhema. The, he didn't just throw the Old Testament at the council, did he? He pulled out the specific strategic word that the Holy Spirit gave to him in that moment to withstand in the evil day. And he'll do the same for you. And, wh- and listen, what will, be the grand, what will be the grand example of somebody showing us what this looks like? Do you know anybody else that will... St- Tempted by the devil, I don't know, in the wilderness, 40 days, right? (laughs) Listen, if Jesus needed the Bible, (laughs) if Jesus needed the Bible to successfully withstand the efforts of Satan, who in the world do we think we are? You remember this, right? In Matthew 4. In fact, it's really interesting. Luke's version said, and Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he was hungry and had not eaten or drank anything for 40 days, and then the devil came. He was filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Man, Jesus had the Spirit without measure, the Bible says. Jesus, from a child, knew the Scriptures. He studied them. God didn't just zap Jesus, guys, and he had Scripture memorized. Jesus studied it the same way you and I are supposed to study it. And he hid it in his heart the way we're supposed to hide it. And what an example to us. I know we can't be Christ, but that's the example to us, right? And you know what he did? Satan came to him, accusing him, tempting him. In fact, let me go a little bit deeper. I'm going to close. Right before Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, do you know what happened right before that? He was baptized. He was baptized. And the Bible says this voice from heaven made this beautiful declaration. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, question. What do you think the first thing the devil tempted Jesus with? Do you remember this? This is really cool, the way the Bible's chronologically laid out in sequence. He said, if you are indeed God's son, then turn this rock into bread, buddy. You're hungry. You're God. I mean, is God holding out on you? I mean, are you, are you really God's son? Think about that. The declaration that God just made to Jesus was tested. But Jesus believed the promise over the lie. What did he say? What did he say? He said, it is written. He said it three times. Deuteronomy chapter 6, chapter 6, and chapter 8. Jesus knew the word. In fact, the first thing that Jesus said was, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, and that word is rhema in Greek, because I checked it. That's great. Jesus knew the specific word to use. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knew that God's word was the most powerful reality he could unleash on Satan. And then, do you know the very last thing Jesus said? Away from me, Satan, for it is written. He's doing the same thing that James chapter 4 says. I love that. Okay, we're closing here. Uh, Yeah, I I think I gave you this quote a while back, but it's still relevant today. C.S. Lewis wrote Screwtape Letters, and he says, It's funny how mortals always picture us, this is a demon talking in his book, picture us as putting things into into their minds, Christians' minds. In reality, our best work 
is done by keeping things out. Satan knows his best work is not by putting, shoving things into your mind. If he can just keep Scripture out of your mind, you're easy pickings for him. You're in the spiritual ER all the time if he can just keep truth out of your mind. And then here's a, oh, wait a minute. Man, I had another one in there somewhere. Where'd it go? Is it in there? Did I leave it out? I did leave it out. Oh, man. Uh, okay, I think it's in here anyway. Let me, let me find it. Yeah, um, so we're talking about rhema, specific words. How might you be tempted? And I really am closing with this, I promise. Southern Baptists have three different closings, right? Finally, finally, finally. If, if you're being tempted specifically by the devil, uh, Wendy Alsup wrote a book that Melissa let me use, and she's got some great, she's got some great uh, illustrations in here. Let me just read some of them to you. She says, here are some scenarios that Satan may throw at you that you can pull out specific words. Satan says, you are worthless. You're worthless. You're a nobody. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares about you. And she says, no, I have been adopted into God's family and given the amazing title of co-heir with Jesus Christ. That's Romans 8, 17, right? Here's another one. You are doomed to repeat your past behavior. You ever feel that way? I've been tempted. I fell again. Is God going to keep forgiving me? The devil's going to say, no, he's, uh, he's done with you. And you're destined to repeat this cycle of destruction for the rest of your life. You're never going to change. No, God has only begun a good work in me. God has not only, excuse me, began a good work in me, but he promised to continue transforming me until the day I'm presented as the spotless bride of Christ in heaven. That's Philippians 1.6, right? Specific word. Here's another one. You will always be an addict, even if you don't act on it. No, Wendy says. By his wounds I am healed. That's Isaiah 53.5. Guys, the whole... Everything about this wielding the sword, everything about putting your armor on. I mean, the, right, the breastplate of righteousness, we talked about, that's the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. You are perfect, guiltless, without stain. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. How do you know that, though? That's a great shield to put on or a great breastplate to wear. But how do you know that? The Word tells you that, right? In Christ, I stand complete. I'm perfect. I lack nothing. I belong to God. How do you know that? Well, Ephesians says, I have been blessed by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I sit, it's almost, if the Bible didn't say it, you almost couldn't believe it. You sit enthroned with God, it says. You are an heir and a joint heir with Christ. We will reign with him as more than conquerors. How do you know that? If you're just waiting for somebody else to tell you that in a sermon, and you don't have anything in your... You turn around and all you got for the devil's a uh, John 3.16. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a powerful verse. But if that's the only rhema you have, friends, you're going to be in the spiritual ER. So the last point is this. Um, and I, I really am done. Promise. This is the last point. Guys, know the word. Know the word. Get in the word. Do, let's do some homework together. I want to help you as your pastor. Anything I can do to help you come up with a winning strategy to get yourself in the Word of God, to immerse yourself in it, to just let it wash your thinking. You know, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, uh, our weapons are not weak, they're not puny, they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, right? Um, and taking thought every captive. You've got to have the Word in your mind and in your heart to do that. You can't rely on your pastor. I'm not strong, I can't fight for you. I can fight with you. But I can't fight for you. You've got to have your own sword of the Spirit. And you've got to know the Word and memorize it and meditate on it and study it. 
And I want to do all I can as your pastor to help you do that. So this is not one of those sermons that's like, oh, poor you. You know, I, I know a lot of people come in here weak and defeated and they need to be picked up and dusted off. Yes, that's true. This is more of a challenge. Maybe, maybe, and hear me now, hear me as your pastor. Maybe you need to be dusted off all the time and you're weak and you're defeated because you're not doing what Paul tells you to do in this passage. Your sword of the Spirit is this rusted old weapon that you hardly know anything about. And you need to pick that thing up and you need to polish it off and you need to sharpen it and you need to ask the Holy Spirit to forgive you for not using the weapon He gave you and to help you renew your commitment to it. And let's do that together as a church, okay? Let's pray.